All right, we are here at the haunted school. <laughs> uh, we'll walk this way first. And we're in the ninth ward. The history that I know of this school, it was established right after desegregation as what you would call like a white flight or a segregatory school. Segregatory? Segregation. Yeah. So that meant that they only had African-American schools. Only white students. Only white. It's got that feel, but it is a little haunted, right? I mean, this got some bad juju. If this is a school that yeah. started up as part of, uh, you know, white flight, what is it like making art in a place like this? Do you ever feel that, that vibe? Nah. Man. The school's not trying to push you out? <laughs> uh, nah, man. I'm... I like being a disruptor. I think I'm the only person of, I know I'm the only black person in this space. I moved in here on Martin Luther King Day 2017, so it was just kind of ironic for me to integrate the space on that day. That's right, you are, you are reclaiming the space in here, regardless right. of the history. There's nothing more political, fascinating, uplifting, and infuriating than school. The country we are, as reflected in our education system, is not exactly how we would like to think of ourselves. But the reflection is true. Take my city of New York. Last week, the city's best public school, Stuyvesant, sent out 895 acceptance letters for the class of 2023, but only seven of those letters went to black students. Seven. In a school district where almost 70% of the students are black or Hispanic, it is an outrage. But it's not just New York, it's everywhere in this country, including one of America's great cities, New Orleans. A majority black city that is still failing its African-American students in some very important ways. We're gonna do three episodes from New Orleans, all with African-American guests, including an artist, a lawyer, and a rocket scientist slash barbecue pit master. And it feels especially right this week to start in a school talking with artist and author El Casimo Harris, who has made education a centerpiece of his work in some very surprising ways. Some hard conversations in the Big Easy, but we will have a good time doing them. From Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms, this is Nathan Thornburg, and you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Here it is, we got our glasses. Well, that's good. That's healthy too. That's okay, a cool. That's a good three fingers of, uh, yeah, <laughs> of Kentucky straight bourbon. All right. Well. Ooh, cheers. Cassandra. Cheers. Yeah. All, right, All right. So I'm gonna toast. Yep. So um, I I wanted to add this disclaimer because Casimu has much better whiskeys at home. Right. And I I insisted that the maker's mark that was here. It's kind of like you know. Uh, what do they call it? The beer from here? Yeah. It's that old Rainier, like ale commercial. Sometimes what's handy and available is the best stuff. And also, like, we're here in your studio, and this is a space for making art. And it feels to me, at least in my experience, almost every studio space, whether it's for art or music or anything else, has had like a bottle of makers somewhere. Right. I think it's because it's good and it's pretty affordable. So I'm excited to have some artists. Uh, Maker's Mark in an, in an art studio. There we go. So the location, and you had given me a tour of the place where we're at called The School 
in the Ninth Ward. Like, let's just launch into that because it seems like such a good corollary to the project that you're currently working on. So tell me about this educational uprising that you are bringing to life in, in your photography. I think it came about, originally, I was working with a band called The Honorable South, and they tasked me to do their album cover. It was four people in the band, and I just thought of this photo. I was with my wife. She was then my girlfriend, and we had had an argument. And so we were sitting at a bar on Valentine's Day. You know, it was an awkward kind of moment. So I started sketching something out on a little napkin. And the photo you see over your left shoulder, that was going to be the album cover. So four students kind of glaring into the camera, a heroic-looking shot. And for them, going off that Gordon Parks weapons right. of my choice, their weapons were, were music. Got so it. before I gave this idea to the band, they said, you know, we want to do Clint Eastwood's The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. So I shot that. <laughs> but I loved my idea so much that I just continued it. Right, because this is a striking photograph. It's it's four African-American students, uh, look like high school age, and they're wearing kind of prep school uniforms. But the defiance is very big in their stance. But it is kind of like that album cover play, right? Right. I can see the connection because, you know, it's like anytime you take a selfie with you and like three other people and you got like staggering depths, right? <laughs> yeah. That's like the band. That's the cover shot. Yeah. There we go. There we go. <laughs> so I'm inspired by that. I mean, not to date the podcast, but we're two days before Valentine's Day and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to New York and having a fight with my wife on Valentine's Day <laughs> and just seeing what kind of creative things there come out of it. Hey, trust me. And then have some drinks afterwards. <laughs> That's right. And then you can make up and, and then you're left with this great sketch, which has yeah, started right. a whole path for you. Now, this is a long engagement you've had with this project. This was 2015. And the other caveat to this was that I think in 2013, I was working on HBO's Treme. I was either like a interim clearance coordinator or an intern in a writer's department. So I, I was really engaged with a lot of scripts. And one day I heard Terry Gross talking to a guy named Adrian Young. And he produced this album called 12 Ways to Die with Ghostface Killer. And uh, they were never in a studio at the same time. So the way he got Ghostface to rap on topic was he wrote an entire script for a movie. And each scene was a song. So that inspired me. Wow. After that initial sketch in 2015, I thought back to that script. So I wrote basically an outline of a script that became one of Benighted. So the first iteration was linear narrative, and the second iteration, when it was displayed at New Orleans Museum of Art, we just kind of mixed it up. So the name is Warn the Benighted, which is, who are the benighted in this scenario? The adults. The adults who are, have built a system where you have a school-to-prison pipeline where arts get short shrift because of maniacal uh, adherence to the testing culture right. and where African-American students are just consistently left out. Correct. These are the, the kids who star, uh, sometimes in, absent, in absentia in your pictures, right? right? It's like it could be the aftermath of a protest mm -hmm. or it's them in the act. I mean, I love some of these photos where they're scaling walls and, you know, they're, uh, they're kind of doing their things to, like, break in or break out, and they're doing it all the while in these very natty prep school uniforms, right. which kind of places them as the students who have finally had enough. Correct. And the wardrobe story was that as the narrative went along, the less they adhered to 
school rules being uniform. And then when you see him entering a school, that was in relation to the number of shuttered schools after Hurricane Katrina that never reopened. Hmm. So they were breaking in to educate themselves about revolts or uprisings, things that you would not be taught in school. Maybe you would be taught the American Revolution, but you wouldn't be taught about Toussaint Overture and what he did against Napoleon and getting that country its freedom. Right. And like how much of the curriculum is based around New Orleans, like Haitian, the first liberators, self-liberators of the continent being here. So obviously it's got to be tied into to your experience coming out of schools, too. Is there a connection? Did you go through some of these things? Is this the rebellion you always had in mind as a as a high schooler? <laughs> I wish I was so cool. I think I was a marginal student, you know, someone who tested well, just wasn't that engaged in school. I know in high school, my senior year, I would cut school to go to the music library at University of Loyola. I think it's the Hogan Jazz Archives. And I would sit there for hours looking at just various things about jazz and the history of New Orleans. So obviously I was interested in learning, but what they were teaching just was a little boring to me. So I didn't go home and do other kind of nefarious things. I just wasn't that interested in school. And the catalyst was once in high school when I talked to a guidance counselor and she like really rebuffed my aspirations. She looked at my marginal grades and was like, you should choose another route like vocational academy or something like that. Nothing's wrong with those things. I think we need master carpenters and skilled people and plumbing and- Right. But we shouldn't put our nerds into those professions. Right. <laughs> if you're a music nerd <laughs> right. and hanging out in the music library yeah. all day, probably you were not meant to be swinging a hammer for nope. the rest of time. Nope. I mean, I'm sitting on a chair that you just fixed, and <laughs> I'm, I'm still upright, so I don't want to... Hey, uh, don't push your luck. <laughs> I don't want to demean your carpentry skills, yeah. but I'm just saying, obviously, your interests were somewhere else. So what did that conversation, was that a wake-up to you? Did, Do you remember the scene off Rudy? when he was trying to get on the bus to go see Notre Dame, and the priest was like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're not Notre Dame material. Like, you can't even dream. Get out of line. It felt like that. And so it's something I always remembered. So much like Rudy, it just drove me. So I didn't have a confrontation with the lady, but through college, through graduate school, throughout life, it's something I've remembered. So, and now looking back, you grew up in New Orleans. Yes. You had that schooling experience. But obviously something in the way, and I would assume a lot of this came out of Katrina, which had brought, I mean, it did a lot of things to this town, but one of them was figuring out how the town rebuilds itself. I imagine it kind of brings up some of its old, ugly instincts and makes that a part of it. I mean, like you said, so many schools that never got reopened. What is the education story post-Katrina for you in this town? Experimental. It's almost like the Tuskegee experiment. Instead of it being health, it's education. So we're not talking about healthy experiment. It's it's more like let's try some crap out on these people we don't care that much about. That's how I feel. Uh, so we've gone away from neighborhood schools. Uh, we've gone to a majority charter system. Initially after Hurricane Katrina, about 7,000 teachers as well as uh, you know, school personnel were fired. That was the middle class of African Americans. They were replaced, by and large, by inexperienced, predominantly white, recent college graduates from like TFA and Teach NOLA and and things like that. So even black students who were in TFA, some of them had a disconnect. I I, I talked to a guy, I say his name, uh, Jonathan Johnson, 
He's the founder of Rooted Schools. He grew up in California. I always say that, you know, he was more of childish Gambino to the students, Lil Wayne. <laughs> I, think I, I think I understand the yeah, analogy. I, I mean, uh, it's, it's both black people, but one of them may be into anime and the other one's into, you know, something totally on the opposite end of the spectrum of that. So sometimes it's not always about how you look to be able to relate to students. Right. So my point is the, the inexperience that they put into the classrooms and these charter schools that are private, public, and moreover, we see what privatization has done to the healthcare industry prisons, housing. None of those things have a winning record. No, 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 no. So now we want to privatize schools? Right. Uh, and, and we have the queen of privatization, Betsy DeVos, yeah. is now uh, at the very top of this sclerotic and diseased uh, right. <laughs> structure that we've got at the moment. And it's not um, really school choice. Right. Because what they're actually doing is degrading and defiling the public school system that existed in, like you said, neighborhood schools are now, uh, they're just not even there right. in a lot of cases. Right. And to be fair, the public school system prior to Katrina was not stellar. It had a lot of issues. Probably one of them is funding. Not probably. It was funding. <laughs> right. It's just, I have a son. He's six. Okay. And we taught him how to read at three because we enrolled him into a reading class. And the reading class maybe was 300 or $600. So we gave our child a head start. If you can't afford that, your child is going to kindergarten behind all these students, mostly were not black, yeah. who's already reading. And then you have the achievement gap that you have, you know, the, depending on your income. So if you have maybe someone in a low-income community and they don't have the wherewithal or the knowledge, the time to read to their child, so you're going into pre-K and kindergarten behind. So now you have teachers in underfunded schools working with children who are just drastically behind. And the problem just exacerbates. Mm -hmm. And I was talking about this with uh, Jennifer Ching um, on an episode that we did where, you know, my kids are 13 and 10. So a little more advanced and we're in the high school you know area thinking about that in new york city we have this thing about specialized admission high schools so that like the very elite academic public schools and you know i went to this insane meeting where you had a number of people who were essentially making the case that in order for there to be a equality at these very highest level high schools in a school district that's 70 percent black and hispanic what you should do is have the city subsidize after school programs that are like private programs like Kumon or like this reading program you put your son in. And it just struck me as this like ridiculous arms race. It's like the answer is probably if you're going to spend money to make your local schools better and better funded and make them better places of learning rather than say, you know, we need to make this kind of stopgap tutoring program accessible to minority students or low income students. It's, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why don't we just work on making the thing better? Like, the core of the thing. I thought this in 1997, my mm -hmm. freshman year of college, I wrote a paper saying that basically there's no incentive to, to properly educate everyone because if everyone was properly educated or equally educated, you had a equitable education, who's gonna, particularly in New Orleans where it's service industry, a lot of service industry drives, who's gonna work in a hotel? Hmm. Who's gonna clean up those rooms? Hmm. Who's going to be the cab driver? Who's going to shuck those oysters? Who's going to fill those prisons? So it's not really profitable to have an equitable education. 
that's how I feel. We need storytelling like the stuff you're doing yeah. to dramatize what's actually happening because yeah. people don't understand. There's something, I think, I think it's called compassion deficiency. You know, someone gets murdered, we see it with such regularity that when, you know, a dog is inhumanely treated, it's out of the norm, it's aberration, so we may have more com- compassion for that. We keep hearing so much about schools, so much about schools, that same old narrative, maybe people were at the school board meeting protesting, that when you have a different type narrative, to hear a familiar story but in a different way, I think that people can receive it better. So Now, obviously, you're, you're an artist, and it's not your job to lead policy uh, on these things. Your job is to kind of you know, throw some wood on the fire of these discussions. But could it happen? Like, how do we get out of it? Do we just register our discontent and try to make stories around it? And that was the problem with Katrina is like, there were moments where you felt like this could be a, a fresh start. I mean, maybe maybe you who were living here was just like, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> but man, I think black folk missed out after Katrina. I think that so much opportunity came here. I think a lot of preference was given to out-of-towners, mm-hmm. bonuses, uh, things like that. And I think that, I don't want to say black folk didn't have that foresight. I think some of it is that you're dealing with so much trauma afterwards. You're really thinking about how to get your life back together, how to get your family together. And so someone moving here with entrepreneurial aspirations who didn't have that trauma, you can think like, oh, well, let's make this a tech place. Let's do film here. Let me run a school as an opportunity. Let me move in and handle my business. So it's only a blank canvas for the creative class that that came in not having to deal with the lives that they had had and were trying to rebuild. That's my point of contention. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, and there has been a lot of redevelopment and innovation here in New Orleans post-Katrina, but I think that some of the natives missed that boat. I was down here. I was working at Time Magazine at the time. We spent a few weeks reporting, but it was like right after the storm. I don't know. I mean, people forget about it. Now we have all sorts of new storms coming up, and we had Sandy, and we had Wilma, and whatever. Like all of these things are kind of pushing it out of uh, out of memory. But what I remember is the feeling that I mean, it was a you know a great American city that was totally destroyed, and that people were just sort of. You know, it, it kind of came and went out of the headlines on some level. And part of it was that when you don't have that attention on a national level, then you you can lack some of the imagination and creativity to try to figure out how to deal with it correctly. And you're right, it's like tourism is up, like New Orleans is booming. And I think actually right down here in Bywater, which is not far from where we're at, they're building like a new cruise terminal <laughs> or something, right? I've heard that, yeah. And which is going to totally, I mean, you think about all the business down there that, you know, are kind of quietly humming. They're about to get blown out of the water if it's true that they're bringing in, like, massive cruise ships. They're not bringing, like, great, you know, culture or opportunities <laughs> with them generally. I mean, unless you're into T-shirts right. and uh, fruity drinks. Right, right, right. <laughs> so You ask about opportunity and how to change things. I think some of it is empowering the people or empowering ourselves to realize that we can make change, to be united, to stand up against things, and to galvanize and pool our resources. If that's done, that's that's a big part of it right there. Another one of my projects, it's about vanishing black bars and lounges here in New Orleans, which I have realized that it's 
or obviously vanishing. Yeah. But at a much faster rate than I thought. Really? So on St. Bernard Avenue between Claiborne and North Rampart, that has for 40, 50, 60 years has been like a hub of black bars. And the black bars, they connect throughout the diaspora, African diaspora, through like a Shabin in South Africa or a Juke joint, places that were very communal, very neighborhood. Uh, when you didn't have a lot of transportation, you could just get off work, walk there. And more importantly, in a, in a apartheid uh, South Africa or Jim Crow, Mississippi and Louisiana, uh, when you couldn't go to some of the downtown establishments, that's where you could go and have your sip. So it was important. It was a safe space. Obviously, in, in, the, in the Delta with the juke joints, that's where the blues came from. These places are, are vanishing. I think that we need to all see the importance of them. And you might not partake in libations, but you could still hopefully see the cultural relevance. Mm-hmm. Here in New Orleans, the social aid and pleasure clubs come out of. This is where the black masking Indians come out of. If they're gone, what happens? Right. So there's sort of these safe places that are these engines of culture yes. uh, in the city. And what, what is driving them out? Is it real estate prices? Is it gentrification? Is it? I think there's a number of things. I think throughout time, a lot of people who are laborers, going back to the, within the African diaspora, where you had a lot of uh, New Orleans that was built up by the Haitians or the architecture of uh, the Africans. So when it came into modern times, you have these master carpenters, brick masons, iron workers. Uh, a lot of those people, I guess it was backbreaking work. Some of them didn't want their children to endure that. Like, hey, I worked hard, so you go off and go to college. So essentially, I think with a lot of black businesses, they're not institutionalized. All right? So right. you don't pass it on. Or maybe some people just get tired. You know, and there's not a contingency plan to pass the bar on. I heard a guy, his name's uh, Victor. He has the other place bar on St. Bernard Avenue. And I was asking him, you know, how do you feel about, you know, you're at this moment the only black bar? And he was like, you know what? They came with a deal, and I don't blame him. He was like, I've been doing the same shit, <laughs> serving the same drinks right. to the same people for 25 years. If somebody offered me some money, I'm going to take it too. So putting that labor and the demand that they not live their individual lives to the way that they want to, but that, that they have to somehow sacrifice for the cause of this when those sacrifices are kind of unnecessarily high. Right. Um, and, and I don't know if they have to do that, but there's this Irish pub called Finn McCool's. When their owners wanted to sell, they sold to some longstanding regulars who, you know, maybe they wanted to make a few changes, but they knew the importance of having this remain an Irish pub. Huh. You know, so that's what I mean about institutionalizing and passing it down. So some of it could be gentrification. Some of it could be someone didn't own a building, but some of it could be someone's tired. Yeah. You know? Well, it's and it's interesting. I mean, one of the things you see in, I've seen this in a place like Seattle where I've lived, where there are definitely fewer, like, kind of, you know, Hispanic, Hispanic bars or Hispanic only or black bars or black only, but they would like, they would kind of take over a night, you know, and be like a Thursday night yeah. at China Harbor was, it turned into like the, the total salsa scene because they didn't have a space of their own. And it kind of shows you like that desire to be at a place where they can come together and have a, a sense of community is really strong and they'll go and find it wherever someone will let them in at the door. Right. People think about Jim Crow and like, well, that's in the past and so on. But ultimately a lot of those dynamics 
seem to me as a white person is like you just observe how they're finding their spaces to realize people need their space. They do. I was a member of the JCC, Jewish Community Center. And, you know, if you were a member of one, you could go to any JCC across America. I've been in Chinatowns in San Francisco and New York and D.C. I mean, and it's just like that's their space. It's not saying like keep your ass out, but this is their space. And I've in Brooklyn in a Hasidic area of the. Uh, it's just like whoa, yeah, you know, clustering. Yeah, it's, I mean, clustering immigration, like yeah. all of these things. These are human impulses, right? And I guess the job of a place of a city like New Orleans is to make sure that. You're not making it so that these places can't exist anymore. So the project that you're working on with the disappearing black bars, is it like Born the Benighted? Is it a photo project across, you know, across a period of time? How's it coming together? How are you telling that story? Straight. Telling it straight. Born the Benighted and some of my other work is what Richard McCabe, curator of photography at the Ogden, he dubbed it as constructed reality. Huh. So it's everything is staged with the vanishing black bars and lounges, no, that's that's just I'm telling it as it is. You know, uh, you know, maybe you know, staging portraits, but the bar as it is. I'm, I was inspired by Bernie Imes's juke joints and just the work that Roy DeCarava did in Harlem. So uh, I guess you would say I'm playing that straight. Yeah. So it's a documentary series, pretty much. Hear yes. the stories mm -hmm. and just bring it together, right? And, and I want to focus on the people, the place, and the ephemera. I went to Little People's Place, and I saw a picture of myself that Michael Smith took when Went Marcellus played there in maybe 1996. That picture is still up in that bar. That's when I was an aspiring trumpet player. You understand what I'm saying? So, like, the history of patrons right. just continues to, to last on. There's another place called Sportsman's Corner, and on the door there's a pennant, the Saints, but then obituaries from – uh, past patrons who transition that's on a door. Wow. So the connection to the community, right. to that bar. That's a real, yeah. I mean, and listen, I clearly, I, I mean, I went, I went dry for January, but I'm not making that mistake again this month. And we, we appreciate drinking here. I think that's one of the great things about it is like, there can be a place for community, right. you know, and it doesn't, it's not, doesn't have to be the only one, but it's right, the, it's right. the one that's available on so many levels. I was actually, I went to a bar at Algiers mm -hmm. last night just because I wanted to take the ferry across and they have this like English pub there and crown and anchor and something. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very English pubby. Yeah. With pubbies. crisp. They serve crisp. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Stuff like that. <laughs> they got, you know, the, the, the union jacks everywhere and, yeah. you know, whatever. I mean, it was, it was, it was a nice little neighborhood joint, uh, but just the way that they had pictures of, you know, people's grandparents in uniform. Right. And I mean, Algiers is, is, I, I didn't spend a lot of time there after Katrina. Uh, so I don't know a lot about the place. It was a kind of bar, speaking of communities, like where people not only seem like they knew each other, but they might have all been related. Mm -hmm. And that's a, you know, I mean, it's a, a largely Caucasian mm -hmm. like environment over there. And again, that's the thing is like, they've made their space. That's where they're hanging out. I don't know if that business is under threat or if like, you know, white bars are, you know, Irish bars are, are going out of style, but I imagine not, you know, I imagine that the challenges facing like a black bar scene are just going to be different. I do know that I think it's pubs in London. Mm. Uh, there, there was an ordinance passed, whatever they call it there, because too many of these historic pubs were being redeveloped. So mm. they were losing their history too. 
and they noticed the importance of like, yo, this is like for real, for real. And we can't just let it keep going away. So they've passed it that, you know, if someone sells, I think it has to continue to be a pub in these historic, basically oh, gave it a historic designation. It's like a conservation easement for drinking establishments. There we go. Right? And you know, in New York, I don't know what part of the city it is, but you see like where Ben Franklin had the printing press and all these old bars, man, that's important, man. Who wants to have a Starbucks there or anything, Crate and Barrel? I Keep mean, it a bar. CVS, Dwayne Reed, or Starbucks. <laughs> you know it's what I'm like, saying? There are three grim roads that any like actual establishment can walk down. And I have to say, just reflecting on it, too, because I, I was just walking through the French Quarter yesterday. Obviously, it's a living monument to getting drunk <laughs> on some level, right? I mean, it's like the whole thing. It's open container. It's people who show up like... You know, God bless him because, you know, I may be in this cohort, but I do believe that the alcoholics of America descend on New Orleans to just express themselves and live freely for a couple of days, you know. Right. And the fact that in that city, in that context, that you would have bars of any kind, especially black bars in a, in a majority African-American environment, like would just go out of business is a it's a shame. It's like the booze business is not in trouble in this town. No, indeed. They don't have black bars in the French Quarter, to my knowledge, though. Mm-hmm. I, I doubt they ever had. One probably would just be that it's cost prohibitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, You'd have to have your $12 beer to you, make that happen. You just have to. There's a black bar a little bit called Victory Bar. It's uh, in the CBD, so it's across from the French Quarter, about three or four blocks away. But I, I'm talking about these little... I don't want to call it a hole in the wall, but just a homey place that you could go. That's the type of places I'm looking at. Yeah, that's amazing. So when when is that coming out? What's the, uh, I mean, you've been showing all over the place with Warren the Benighted and, and you've had big shows. It's ongoing. I have three photos from that series currently on view in a solo exhibit right now at Grambling State University uh, Dunbar Gallery. So it's three photos. That'll be up until February 26th. But currently I'm in four different shows that one, the solo show at Grabbing State University. I'm in uh, a show called Per Sister about formerly incarcerated women at Newcomb Art College at Tulane. So I went back to Constructed Realities and recreated or embodied the story of Fox Rich, who her and her husband at some point collectively had been incarcerated for about 30 years. Hmm. The other series is uh, Dandelion. That's at Hammond House. So that's also a group exhibit, Hammond House in Atlanta. That's curated by Chantrell Pre Lewis. And the other exhibit that I'm currently in is Race and Revolution, Still Separate, Still Unequal. And that's at Penn State. And that has photos, four photos from the uh, Warner Benite series. And that's curated by Katie Fuller and Larry O.C. Mensa. So all up the eastern United States, in the south of north in Pennsylvania, telling the story from, I guess, the New Orleans perspective as well? I think some of it in writing. I started out writing. I st- I'm still a writer. So I started writing maybe three or four years before photography. I think this guy named Roy Peter Clark at Point Institute, he calls it the ladder of abstraction. Hmm. So basically, these are themes that may resonate with the individual at first, but they continue to go up to themes that relate to everyone. And so we get into the story uh through the point of view of one person, but it's a bigger issue. So these stories may be based in New Orleans, but it's an issue that right. I think is national or international. Well, and I love that. I mean, my group is journalists, and we're always, and unfortunately not everybody does a great job of this, but you know, you, you have to maintain that big wall between you know, what did and did not actually happen. 
but you know you run into the limits of documentarianism sometimes right it's mm-hmm. like because if you want to make connections especially between like you're saying between your city and a wider area but are not going to do a multi-year documentary project all over but you know those ideas are real and relevant and need expressing on some level then that's where art can kind of step in right but you you i mean you dip back and forth i guess between the kind of documentary and the artistic way to deal with those things is it just depend on on the subject matter like which tool you're going to use how you decide if you're going to use this constructed reality or if you're going to go out and just hit the street and do kind of journalism on it that's exactly right that's, that's exactly what i do i went to university of mississippi for journalism so uh it was print journalism i started graduate school 10 days before hurricane katrina and i picked up photography then wow uh, right. and so you were doing graduate school here or in mississippi that mississippi was, okay so i went like August 18th and Katrina hit like August 28th. Yep. So to answer your question, yes. Some stories just dictate that it should be told this way and other things should be told another way. What it boils down to is the amount of freedom I can have. If a, the bar series, I just think it presents itself the way it is. You know, for the school series, what school is going to let me go? <laughs> <laughs> and dramatize the rebellion right. that it's right. on under underserved right. and underappreciated uh, students are right. watching. Yes. Right. So, like, you know, going back to my time on Treme, where, you know, I, there's so much I learned from working on that show, like locations, uh, scouting locations. And I, I carry that throughout my artistic practice. So when they're breaking into somewhere, it's just an abandoned building. It wasn't even a school. Uh, another time I used a former school that's a condos now to play it as a school. And I did use a school once, a school that I got fired at when I was a journalism teacher. I, 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 my contract didn't get renewed, I suppose. But anyway, <laughs> I still had a good enough relationship to, to go back. So the, I'm, yeah. I'm just always trying to tell stories. I'm very passionate about it. And this is what I, I love about art and journalism when it's done. I'd say not all journalism, some of it's just factual reporting, but a lot of this kind of like nonfiction or documentarian work it's like it comes from the person like yeah. you are who you are no matter what you're going to do like what the project is or what you know where you're pointing the lens or what you're writing about it's still you that's this kind of i guess uh, amalgamation of all these interests and experiences you've had and then who cares like which way it's going you mm-hmm. know like if you're posing these students to create this story or if you're saying well this is a real story that's happening right now right i'm gonna say this and i hope I meet him one day. I hope not to meet him one day, and I'm just sorely disappointed. But you know, Donald Glover. Mm. I, I just so your 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 team, Childish Gambino. Oh, all the way <laughs> instead I, of team. What was it? Lil Wayne was this, the students, and the oh. Childish Gambino is the teacher. I fell out with Lil Wayne when he picked the Vikings over the Saints in the 2009 championship game. So I I haven't been a fan of Lil Wayne since then. I I have to say, as an aside, the number of uh, fuck the Super Bowl t-shirts that I've seen (laughs) in this town in the past couple weeks or the past couple days is is incredible. The ability for someone from this town to make personal uh, (laughs) politics of football, very impressive. Man. I I don't mean to bring up a bad subject. I know it's... I uh, got over it. I lived in Tennessee from 1998 to 2004. So that was at the height of the Tennessee Titans um, mm-hmm. run, and they went. They even went to the Super Bowl. So I had to learn. And so I, I'm, I'm in a fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, uh, and a lot of my fraternity brothers would come over to the house and watch it, and they would just bask in the Saints fucking some shit up. <laughs> and I would, like, put them out. I would throw stuff, throw stuff, and I just had to pray. Like, I need to be delivered from this anger <laughs> of being disappointed by the Saints. 
So I've learned to get over it really quickly. That's good because I did. I had this thought when I saw somebody with that T-shirt on. I was like, I think you're only you can only really wear that T-shirt in Cleveland. <laughs> you know, like Saints have actually like you know, it's been up, it's been down, but they they they, they were in it. You know, they're right. they're in the mix uh, on some level. Like I, I don't know that New Orleans has a has a proper claim to heartbreak. I mean, I, this last game was not was there, but last two years, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's true. It's 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 not a new story. I mean, I was in living in Tennessee when the Saints, I believe, it was in 1999 against the Carolina Panthers. They did this basically. They they did a Cal versus Stanford. Mm. They returned a kick, and you know, one with a lot of, a lot of laterals and throwing the ball back and the forth. The band back. is on the field. And yeah, everybody's getting <laughs> knocked down. Yeah. So they 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 scored. They tied a game to win it. Or maybe they 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 were a point underneath, uh, a point behind. Yeah, and they needed to kick the extra point to send it to overtime. The motherfuckers missed the extra point. This is when the extra point was still like on a five yard line. Right, right. This is Al Del Greco. I believe that's who missed it. I mean, so it's like, how you gonna have something so improbable? Yes, and that's where you start to build this narrative, like. Yeah. It is us. Yeah. Like, it's something we did. I it's, think I think Jefferson said it, man. He said New Orleans is an impossible city on an inevitable site. What he was saying was that New Orleans, because of the proximity to the Gulf of Mexico, should be built about 90 miles inland, which would be from the Gulf of Mexico, Baton Rouge. But because of the close proximity to the Gulf of Mexico, it was a port city. They built it here anyway. So, you know, when the Native Americans were here, they had the irrigation down. They, they saw the flooding. They, had the, they knew the silt. So they knew when to move and decamp and come back. But, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. Your folk. <laughs> that, that greed is like, now yes. we, we, need, we need to be here. We need to be efficient. We are talking about the colonizers yeah. uh, who, I mean, speaking of my folk, it's 1,000%. And it's not even, it's not even the color of your skin. But it's the mentality that's been adopted by, you know, the the people who inhabit my pigment. The Army Corps of Engineers, which we were saying, is right across the street from here. They have a, a hub. It's like, you know, you talk about being upset about Saints football. There's no club for people who are angry at the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, like, uh, I mean, me, it's like me and Mike Grunwald, who's done all this amazing, very outraged uh, reporting about what they've done to the Mississippi. You know, and I'm from South Florida, what they did to the Everglades. Like, mm-hmm. these grand schemes to try to trap and control and monetize these acts of God, you know, these these parts of nature that, that were never meant to stand for it. I mean, people lost their lives over that here. And they will, and they'll continue to, you know, where I'm from in Key West and, and the Everglades and everywhere the Army Corps of Engineers has tried to create a profit off of nature. I don't think it's wrong to ascribe that, as particularly in this hemisphere, to a, a uh, that is the Caucasian, like, who's getting that money? Like, right? I mean, it's just how it is. To your point, my son Grayson, my daughter Leori, and to whatever unborn child I have, I have to tell them that in life, just work hard. Just be the best that you can be, you know, and that's done by, you know, repetition, dreaming, doing what you have to do. But for as much work as you put in it, it's some motherfucker looking like how can they reap off your benefits? Mm-hmm. How can they do the least amount of work to just mm-hmm. take your work? But that's it. So you're telling your children just like watch out. Just have eyes on the back of your head for whoever might take you know, or put yourself in a position where you get to reap the rewards of your own labor and your own success. The hard part for me as an adult is how do you not rob a child of their innocence? Yeah. 
So like, uh, I remember one time I was telling my son, like, hey, so- sometimes someone's going to want to take something from you just because who you are. He's like, well, I'll just give them one. <laughs> I'm like, well, but that, that's not how we're, so, you know. I right. Just, that's a beautiful moment right. in time in a child's life where right. that's the instinct and the reaction. And how do you keep, right, how do you make sure they do that, you know, within their own personal circles? Right. And are that person, but not, right. not so open to the world that, because we know what would happen to that instinct in the larger ecosystem. But I think the dichotomy of America is the people who are working for the just, the verdant, whatever they say on NPR or some may the, the the MacArthur Foundation or something like that. But they're the the other class of folk or school of folk who just like I'm I'm just ready to take your shit. Yeah. You know, so the predator class. There we go. The, thank you. We should probably not elect them to the highest offices in land. Ever. Um, <laughs> but Ever. we're gonna have to redo that at a, at another moment because uh, Ever. But you know, fuck it, there's like there's some ways of handling it and some some reactions, and it's the reason why I wanted to talk to you is it just feels like you're creating these ways of talking about this stuff that are important. They just are. We can't all be policy wonks. Sometimes you have to make oh, art yeah. to sing about this stuff, and right. and your projects do that. So, so thank you. Thank you, man. Keep that going. Uh, I, I wish we had more whiskey, but we're going to have to know, step man. out to find it. I know. <laughs> I just... I just want to keep drinking bourbon, loving my <laughs> wife Ariel, and telling stories. <laughs> Ariel, sorry about that Valentine's. That was uh, that was unfortunate, but look what came out of it. I know. I had an exhibit at New Orleans Museum of Art, man. Like, I mean, it was <laughs> like a one fight from Valentine's. There we go. I mean, it was like a big ass banner. Like, it was crazy to see this thing between the cop. It's under the table to tell you the truth. <laughs> this massive the banner, banner yeah, at it, the New Orleans Museum of Art. Yeah. Just behind one Valentine's date gone wrong. And Russell Lord, the curator, he came here to this studio. My son was here, and he was like, uh, that's, that's the thing. When you Sometimes when you're talking and you don't know what the stakes are. <laughs> that can be better. D- exactly. Exactly. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm still coming up in the photography world and just the storytelling world, period. And I thought he just wanted to kind of hang out and shoot the shit. And uh, I had an exhibit in New York, so I couldn't meet, I couldn't go to lunch with him that day. So he was like, well, let's do something more intentional. Let me come to your studio. I'm like, man, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> I like printed all this stuff out. I spent like $1,000 printing out new photos. And he came in and he looked at those photos. There used to be eight on the wall mm. over there. From Warren the United. That's the first iteration. And I, he was like, so where do you want to go with this? And I'm telling him, you know, I, I'm just dreaming big because I, I had no stakes because yeah. I could never imagine being in New Orleans Museum of Art within another five years or so. Right. And uh, yeah, I'm telling him, I'm going to shoot large format. I didn't even really know what large format was. <laughs> so then I had to go out with this dude named Tom Bennett, who was one of my studio mates, and he showed me, showed me how to shoot four by five. So anyway, it's just interesting. I was just speaking with a great freedom. Right. And... I like to continue to do that without throughout life. Just dream free, you know. It's 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 one of the the, the few freedoms we actually have, right? right? It's our own ideas and our own like what we'd like to see out there. I think that it's proven some of us are all gifted these dreams at the same time. So it's not really about the dream in a sense. It's about who executes it. I'm sure somebody else has some ideas like Walt Disney or George Washington Carver. But that's the people who did it. You know, some, Sally Mae Jemison wasn't the only woman who wanted to go to space, but that's the woman who did it. 
my thing is from idea to execution to implementation. Mm. And if we can just keep that freedom, maybe we fuck it up. Maybe we don't do it, but we have to keep striving for it. That's it. That's it. Damn. All right. That's 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 a perfect place to leave. I, I feel like everybody should be should have taken notes on this and live your life accordingly, please, because then you'll end up doing the uh, the kind of work that uh, El Casimo Harris is doing. And I appreciate it so much, man. Thank I you. I appreciate you saying my name correctly. <laughs> Thank you, bro. The trip from Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Taffy Mokanyadze is our editor and will be leading the next school rebellion from the front, I am sure. Emily Marinoff is our producer. Music by Dan the Automator, episode illustration by Daisy D, show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Next week, we are with Pepper Bowen, who has crafted a very unique career for herself in New Orleans as a food lawyer. We drank big gulp daiquiris and talked about hard alcohol, urban farming, and social justice. Now for a word about Luminary Premium, our future and fabulous home for the show. It is a platform for a diverse and amazing array of podcasts that will be yours ad-free for just $7.99 a month. We still have this pre-sale offer for listeners to the trip. Sign up for Luminary Premium before April 22nd through luminary.link backslash trip and you will be enrolled to win experiences from some of Luminary's most exciting creators, like Dinner with Guy Raz, or a personalized podcast about you from Lena Dunham, or a Brooklyn day drinking and or day eating crawl with me. Go to luminary.link backslash trip to sign up today. That's luminary.link backslash trip to sign up before April 22nd. Terms and conditions apply. As a bonus, you'll also knock a dollar off your monthly price for the rest of the year by signing up early. No purchase necessary, must be 18 years or older, and a resident of the continental United States. Sweepstakes ends April 22nd, 2019. Void where prohibited. We will see you next week.